as you grab your coffee and juice and donuts. Uh, we'll get ready to start. Great to see everybody. Great to see everybody, especially since I know some of you guys were partying last night. I'm an eyewitness, several of you, by the way. Dancing, too. Okay. Okay, I spilled the beans. So you were partying, too? Ah, just observing. <laughs> okay. I'm going to start us off in prayer and uh, as we begin a, a, a new study today. If you'll notice, I'm not Kelly. We'll get, we'll get into that. But we have enjoyed him. So I'll begin in prayer. Father, uh, we just thank you for a glorious day, Lord. We thank you for the refreshing rains. And Lord, we, we seek you. We seek you this day through your word. And we ask that the Holy Spirit would be our guide and that he would keep us into truth and that he would fill us uh, with life. We lift these things to you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Speaking of Kelly, I'd surely like to thank him for that tremendous study that he just did for us uh, in Luke. You know, we, we live in an age when uh, many that go to churches are really looking to hear a, uh, a message on pop psychology, something to build up your self-esteem. Well, you won't, you won't normally get that here. So it's still nice to hear just about Jesus. And uh, it, it, makes, it makes us uh, loving more. So we're going to start a new letter, a new epistle or book today. We're going we're gonna to start with the Thessalonian letters. We're going to start in 1 Thessalonians. And I... Uh, thought I'd just teach First uh, Thessalonians, and then we'll have maybe another teaching, then I'll come back to second. And uh, I'm excited about this book, and I think we all should be, especially in the time in which we're living. Uh, someone has characterized First uh, Thessalonians uh, by three words, simplicity, gentleness, and affection, and I think it's simplicity in the teaching that Paul sets forth before us, and gentleness in his delivery of it, and then there's an there's an affection to the readers uh, that that hear it, both in Thessalonica and in this room, and so uh, it it kind of draws us to the book. I thought I'd open uh, with an introduction, and then maybe get into chapter one. Um, but I always find out that when I plan to do something, it doesn't normally happen here in Sunday school. <laughs> so I want to say that what we, what we have here is a conversation, and I welcome all your comments and your insights, and I think it, it benefits everyone in the room when we have that kind of input, and it makes it more enjoyable. So I, you know, I invite you. Uh, I thought I'd divide the introduction into, into four things. Number one, the significance of the book itself. And I think it's an exciting book, and I think also that it's sometimes neglected uh, when you consider the times in which we live, especially now, because there is an anticipation that these readers in Thessalonica were having about Jesus and, and his possible soon return. Uh, you know, there, there, there are many names for Christ, but I think this book introduces us to one that we don't often think of, and that is the soon coming king. And as we go through the book uh, of 1 Thessalonians, there are five chapters, you're going to see there's going to be reference to Christ's second coming in each chapter. And so that, that adds to what the theme of this book is, which is eschatology. When you, when you think of eschatology, what, what do you think of? What does that bring to mind? Coming. Well, it reminds me of when you were teaching Daniel. Daniel was all about eschatology and, and revelation and our, our hope for um, today and the future. Absolutely. So 
and Daniel had so much that ties into this and and revelation and, and all all the so it's prophecy that we're talking about. In particular, we're talking it's about an end times prophecy that's coming. And so whenever you do that, you gotta be careful though, because there's always a tendency for some to go into the sensational and, and to miss the point, which is what I'm going to show is we're going to have doctrinal uh, message uh, teaching from Paul, but it's going to be with a practical application. And I think that we should stay focused on what our hope is and what peace that brings us versus how it all happens necessarily, not to get caught up in that so much. But it does give you, as you said, a hope in the future, and it gives you an anticipation. I think that gives you it gives us more power in our present living and how we live in our individual uh, walks. So I find that exciting. Um, another thing of significance is this is, I've seen uh, some sources say that it's just Paul's first epistle, and some say, no, that Galatians is first, this was second. Either way, it's one of the first two. We'd have to admit that. It's actually dated for us in uh, Acts 18, there's a made mention of a proconsul named Gallio, who was a Roman proconsul, and we know the time of his uh, his uh, reign there in uh, in Corinth is being in the early 50s. So it dates the book in the very early 50s because we know the book was written from Corinth. Um, so as being you know, anytime you read a, a great author's first books, you know, you you kind of get a feel for the, uh, the style that he's going to have throughout his writing. And I think we, we begin to pick up on that with this book and as well with Galatians. So it's interesting from that standpoint. Also, this would have been, for the Thessalonians, the very first presentation of the gospel by anybody. So Paul and Silas and Timothy would have been the ones who delivered it to them. And uh, <coughs> so in, in, in one, one sense, it's an introduction to Christian teaching for everybody, to brand new believers. And it gives us an idea of what, or the, what did Paul, what did the Holy Spirit consider to be basic and essential in our understanding of Jesus. In the letter, we're gonna see several things, several, doc, several doctrinal type issues addressed. Salvation by grace, for one. Sanctification will be there. Joy and peace of the Holy Spirit, divine election, effective Christian testimony, and of course, the coming of the Lord, Jesus Christ, his return, and also divine judgment and wrath. All pretty interesting topics, I would say, in the times that we live, as time proceeds. And then, as I said, uh, of significance is the fact that the doctrinal and the practical are going to go hand in hand here. When Paul, in chapter 4, begins to give a very uh, direct uh, description of the uh, removal of the church and believers, he's going to end it with comfort one another with these words. Okay, comfort. The purpose of his giving that forth is for, for the, was for their comfort, and it's for our comfort as well. So I, I like the way he appeals to the mind and the heart at the same time. So let's get second part. Let's go into a little bit of the historical background. If you went to Ephesus or Corinth today, you'd probably find a lot of ruins. And uh, if you went to Thessalonica today, you'd find a thriving city, probably the second most populous city in Greece. It goes now by a little different name, Salonica or Thessaloniki. And and that, that would be present day. And it has so much to do with its location. That's what made it such a prosperous city. Thessalonica was built by, was built in about 315 B.C. by Cassander. Okay. Now, he was a uh, Greek general. Where, where did we study him before? Anybody remember? Back to Daniel. Back to Daniel. Four generals. Daniel chapter 8, if you remember that. Daniel had a vision of a, uh, a two-horned ram and a shaggy male goat with a single prominent horn that uh, subsequently the horn was broken, four little horns, smaller horns rose up, 
one of the, and they represented the four generals because he had no physical heirs to his throne or his reign. Uh, there were four generals that came up. Cassander was one of them. We didn't focus on him. We focused on two others. Anybody remember the other three? Ptolemy, P.T., Ptolemy was one, Seleucus, Seleucus, and Lysimachus were the other. And we focused on the north and the southern kings, uh, Ptolemy and, and Seleucus. And there were some bad characters that came out of that bunch. So, but a lot of history was, was uh, given to us in Daniel. So uh, the city was actually named for Cassander's wife, Thessalonica. So we have another, another book in the Bible that's kind of related to a woman's name. Um, she happened to be the half-sister of Alexander the Great. And uh, <clears throat> it was built next to an area, a region called Therma. And you know they have a lot of warm springs in that area of the, of the world. And there had been a warm springs near there, a hot springs. It flourished for hundreds of years. And as I said already, due to the location, it was... Uh, next to uh, a major uh, land route and a major shipping route. So it was, it was built in a harbor uh, on the northwest corner of the Aegean Sea. And uh, it also coincided with a very special Roman road called the Via Ignatia, which connected uh, Rome essentially with the Orient and passed through Thessalonica. So it was a major coming together confluence of different peoples and uh, from different areas, and so you'd have <coughs> Greeks, of course. Uh, Thessalonica is in Macedonia, which would be present-day Greece. You'd have Greeks, you'd have the Romans, because it was a, indeed a, a Roman colony, and then wherever good business was going, you'd have Jewish people, and so uh, they were there as well. Okay, so there would be about, it was, it was established as a Jewish colony in about 168 B.C. There were about 200,000 uh, citizens that lived in the area back then, mostly made up of pagans, which were the Romans and the Greeks, and then Jews would have also been there, as I'd said. Um, because of the large number of Gentiles, there was a thriving pagan religion in that area. And... Uh, <clears throat> If you know about pagan religions, you understand that much of their worship uh, is focused on immoral sexuality and uh, all that goes with that, drinking and, and, and everything. And it was very debauched, very debauched. And there would be, uh, because of that, there were a lot of uh, the Greeks and, and, the, and the Romans that weren't Jewish that would uh, have difficulty with their consciences in dealing with that, and they were seeking uh, higher, higher standard of spirituality. And so the traction would be the synagogue that was there because the Jewish uh, uh, religion held, held a higher level of accountability with their own script, with the scriptures of the Old Testament. And so that resulted in a lot of proselytes. Is that right? Proselytes. Uh, people coming from uh, pagan religions into the Jewish religion seeking to find some level of spirituality. And uh, so that also accounts for why there were so many at the time when Paul came to the area to teach. In the synagogue, we'll see specifically he went, but there are lots of uh, Gentiles and, uh, and Roman pagans there, as well, as well as other prominent people. Okay, so that's the historical. Uh, contextual, with regard to this letter, let's look at the contextual. By about uh, 42 B.C., uh, Thessalonica received uh, designated status as free city, a free city, uh, and that was from Caesar Augustus because the men of the city had assisted him in overthrowing a couple of his enemies like uh, Cassius and uh, Brutus, and therefore they were, they were allowed a lot of freedom. They, had, they stationed a Roman proconsul there, but they didn't garrison any troops. So the Jewish, excuse me, the, the uh, Greeks were allowed to run the city, their city their own way, which normally consisted of a, uh, a Greek city-state would consist of five or six politarchs. We'll see that term when we go to Acts. And they had their own senate and then a public assembly. 
So they had some freedom, but they didn't want to rock the boat. That's the last thing you wanted to do when Rome gave you some freedom is give them a reason to remove it. And so they had to be careful. So uh, this, is, this, would, this would have been the setup about the time uh, uh, in early 50 A.D. When, when Paul, Silas, and Timothy arrived. Okay? Now we find their story uh, in Acts 16 and 17, 17 mostly, with regard to Thessalonica. Uh, this would have been Paul's second missionary journey. And he had, they had already, he'd been with Barnabas. Uh, they'd gone to some of, they revisited some of the Asian uh, cities they'd been to. And uh, he decided he wanted to go further. Uh, he wanted to, uh, somebody, Barnabas, I think, wanted him to take John Mark. This is when he said no on John Mark. And at that time, Silas then became his, his cohort. And they headed. And if you remember, the Holy Spirit kind of got in the way of Paul going in certain directions. In fact, it left him one way to go. And he also, uh, at this time, had a vision of a man in Macedonia that said, come to us, come talk to us. And so he subsequently went to, uh, first he went to Philippi. And you remember uh, Silas and uh, Paul were tossed in jail there. And then, you know, they pray and sing and the doors open and the jailkeeper comes in and he's gonna, he sees everybody's gone, he's gonna die. So he threatens to fall on his sword and asks then what shall he do to be saved? And Paul tells him, you know, believe and be saved, you and your family. And so from Philippi, they're released from jail, and the next place they go is Thessalonica. So let's turn to Acts 17, and we'll look at verses 1 through 10. Acts 17, verses 1 through 10. And I'll just read. <clears throat> now, when they had traveled through... Amphipolis and Apollonia, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus who I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of of God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released him. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. So we see that Paul is accused of turning the world upside down which is really a pretty accurate statement, which is what he was doing. And, uh, but they, also, they accused him of doing it by sedition. And so that's, that's the way these guys usually work. They, you know, they went down to the marketplace and got a bunch of hooligans to gang up and, and cause a riot and raise a ruckus. So from there, uh, they did travel. They left Thessalonica before they wanted, and they traveled to Berea. Berea is a good short stop for them too, but they ultimately go to Athens. Now, from Athens, Paul is really concerned with the Thessalonians, the Thessalonican church, of their welfare, how they're doing. You know, did they leave too soon? Are they going to fall back, revert into paganism and immorality? Or, you know, they're just babies. What in the world is, are we going to do? And so he's worried, and he decides to send Ty, uh, Timothy, Timothy back to Thessalonica to see how they are, Okay. Now, Timothy is going to report back to Paul, and he, they meet up again in Corinth, and we'll, we'll have reference to that when we get to the third chapter of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians. So he rejoins them, as I said, in Corinth, and he's got encouraging news. He's got a great report. 
about this young fledgling church, about how well they're standing for the Lord. And it, I think it changes the attitude that Paul has before he pens this letter from what he would have originally done. And they also have questions that have arisen in the time since he's left, that short time. Some say three weeks, but it's really, some say, well, he couldn't have done what he did in three weeks. It had to be three months or whatever. It, the three weeks were in the synagogue. That's all that we were actually told. So, But it was a short time, and he, and he evidently made a huge impact with them and taught them a whole lot of things about uh, Christianity. So the last little segment I want to address is, is the letter's purpose. So inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul had a lot of reasons uh, for writing this letter. One of those, as I said, was to encourage the Thessalonians. And we find out that they're not... They don't just need, uh, you know, a pep talk. These people are really in persecution. They're really under affliction, okay? They're, they're having to stand for what they believe, and it's not well received for the same reasons they tossed Paul and Silas out of town. And they need to, he wanted them to resist the tendency to revert back to that immorality that was so prevalent in the pagan worship that was, that was abounded there. He also wanted to refute there had been some slanderous statements made about he and Silas uh, that they were just money grabbers, profiteers, they were merchandising the Thessalonians, and that they ran out as cowards and hypocrites. So he wants to address that. He, he uh, wants to stand up for, for uh, his name among them. And the, the fourth thing was to answer some questions. Some questions had arisen. Uh, during the time uh, after they left, some of, the, some of the, those that had come to Christ had, uh, had died, and they had concerns and questions about some of the things they had been taught by Paul, such as, what about the coming of Christ? Because, they've, because these have died, are they going to miss it? And so Paul needs to address that, which is also very telling in the fact that why would they care so early on about someone missing because of death about an event that hadn't happened yet unless they thought it could happen at any moment? So that, leads a, that lends a lot of uh, credibility to the imminency that's associated with the return of Christ. So there we have that. So with all that, we can go to the text. Let's do that. And we'll start just in verse 1 of chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians, right after Colossians. Let me also say, uh, sometimes Paul will de deal with a, a, with a church based upon what their state is, the state that they're in, their condition, their circumstances. Sometimes he deals with them based on their position, who they are in the Lord. Okay, So we'll see some kind of a switching back and forth with Paul as we go through. Also, remember and understand uh, that Paul received some very exciting news from, from Timothy about how these how, about how this church was doing. His original intent had been to kind of coddle them and encourage them in his letter, but he saw, you know, that he was really not dealing with immature believers, and, and they weren't so fragile. They weren't what we call snowflakes. They were actually true believers. They established the truthfulness of their, of their conversion by the things that he hears about them, such, such that Paul is sure that these people have, uh, truly know the Lord. And uh, what I'm talking about is their testimony is going to precede them by the time Timothy gets back. So the uh, tone and the attitude of the letter is different from what you would expect Paul the Apostle to write to a brand new church. He, he treats these uh, guys like pr pretty uh, uh, solid in the faith, and I think that says a, a, lot, a lot about them. So, verse 1, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. So I think immediately we see that he's dealing with them uh, right here, not in their state so much as in their position. They are a church of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a high, high calling, a high placement, and it puts them uh, in their citizenship in heaven. And he says, grace to you and peace. We see that a lot in the epistles, don't we? And Paul uses it very frequently. Uh, Peter uses it as well. And uh, it's kind of a, it's just a beautiful blessing. Uh, but when you stop and think about it, it can be a, 
a bit confusing sometimes. What, what exactly is grace? How would you define grace? It's something we get from God, right? It comes from God. Do we deserve it? Is it our reward for how well we've done? No, so it's unmerited favor from God that he gives us. And I think one, one, one way together, I think the peace, excuse me, the grace of God allows us to enjoy the peace with God, number one, and of God, number two. Uh, grace is that, that's, that's the thing that intrigues me so much. When I think about the traits of God, the attributes of God, you know, many things come to mind. His holiness, his justice, uh, his, his knowledge, uh, just all these things. But if one of them intrigues me more than any, it's, uh, it's this core quality he has of goodness. You know, I can see God being all that he is, and, but what, what requires him to be good? What requires him to extend grace to us? What, what do, whatever is there in us that, that makes him make a way for us, make the way for us, a very costly way, by the way. Uh, and it's his goodness, and I just don't, I, I just see that. He didn't have to do that. It's just so uh, much grace. I think uh, David, let's turn to Psalm 145, verses 6 through 9, and I, I think that David appreciated this. I'll just read it. 145. Verses 6 through 9. And it kind of captures what I feel about how God is. He says, Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts. This is to God. And I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness. And I will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all. And by his goodness, he made a way in extending grace. And, you know, it's, it, and that gives us that peace. You know, there's a peace with God when you're not his enemy anymore. And, that, you know, we were, at, we were at odds with the Lord. We were his enemy. And by receiving Christ's saving work on our behalf, that, that's removed, but he doesn't leave it there. We're not just not his enemy anymore. Now he raises us to a position of sonship by adoption, and that brings us right into his family. And now we have the actual peace of God, and uh, that's just you know something we don't deserve, but it, it sure feels good. Any comments on grace and peace? Jeff? I agree. I, I, you know, it's such a part of him, but I just don't, uh, it's like, why is he good? I mean, couldn't he be otherwise? And what would be, be under at that point? It's just, yes, it's, it's, a, it's who he is, and it's consistent with him totally in his character, but it's just not required. There's nothing that makes us deserve what he has done for us. It's holy him. And if he's not there, he's one of the Roman gods. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right, so let's turn. Uh, we're going to go further in the text. And I think this part here is going to go now more to the state of the Thessalonian church. I'm going to read uh, uh, chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. And uh, good. Uh, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, I'm going to stop there because that's verse 4 and I want to spend a little time on it. So he's always in prayer. I think the NASB missed a little bit of the visual effect that you get on uh, the end of that uh, 
segment where it says the pre- in the presence of God, our Father. Actually, the, the, the idea is in the sight of God, in the sight of God. Uh, and you'll see that in some of the other translations. What do you think about Paul, how he prays for everyone continually? Do we believe him? Does he really do that? I mean, do we say we're praying for you all the time, you know? Do people believe us? Are we doing it? And I think he is. I think he was. I believe him. Uh, and I believe he's not just praying for them. I think he's giving praise about them to God. And, and I think part of that reason, we see three little words in here that, that appear uh, not infrequently with, uh, with uh, uh, relation to Christian uh, living. And, and, and that is faith. And here it's faith love and hope. We've seen that in Corinthians, right? That's the great chapter, faith, hope, and love. Faith, love, and hope here. And uh, for Paul, I believe it confirms to him uh, by what he's heard through Timothy of the uh, genuine, the genuineness of the conversion of these, of these believers. So what, what do we make of work of faith? Those words are normally contrasted, aren't they? Work and faith except for James, right? James says uh, faith without works is dead. You know, didn't, didn't the uh, people who Jesus was talking to uh, and over in chapter 6, they said something about what shall we do that we, what must we do that we do the works of God? And what did Jesus say? Believe on him that he sent. Which is, so that's really not a work, it's, it's a response, believe. So that's not really a work. I think that the work, and it's, a, it's in singular here, so I think it says more about a transfer, uh, transform of life. And I think that's what the whole book of James is alluding to, that, you, that, the, that a true, deep, rich conversion is going to signify uh, itself in testimony as a transformed life. So... And by, by virtue of these character, uh, tra- uh, characters that are uh, brought here, left here, Paul is able to, in his mind, freely uh, give credit to these as, as genuine salvation experiences. So I would say does, so then everyone that believes has a, has a work of faith. Do all believers ex- exhibit a work of faith? And we know that's not so. So this really seems to point it up to Paul. You know, uh, Charlie did a, a series a couple of years ago, and he talked about the parable of the sower and the seeds. And the take-home message was, we don't all finish well. doesn't mean we're not believers, but we don't all finish well. And these people in Thessalonica were on the road to finishing very well. And it was, you know, it just it removed all question from Paul's mind, and so he's, he's proceeding in that. Uh, what is a labor of love? It's, it's a motivation for service. And who's the love for? For Jesus, right. You know, another kind of a, um, a scripture to mix into this is Christ himself said, if you love me, obey my commands. Oh, yes, I'm going to... We're going to, if you love me, keep my commandments, Brian said. And that's so true. We're actually, it, there's application to that in this next section that we're going to look at. So very good. Obedience to Jesus demonstrates that you have a transformed life. It demonstrates that you are saved. How can you love someone if he hasn't saved you? And so, this is all in the sight of God, uh, as, as per Paul saying. So let's go to the, let's pick it up in verse 4. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice for you, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So, when I read this verse the first time, knowing, brethren, beloved of God, his choice of you, my first response was, oh no. Isn't that like election? Oh, no, I can't, you know, and my, con- my, my little voice in my head started saying, you can't, you can't go there. You can't teach this. 
you're not qualified. You didn't go to a seminary. There are people plenty smarter than you that have all kinds of teaching on this. There are guys like uh, Calvin and Arminius whose names are attached to these things, and they have whole systems surrounded with this deal. There's no, you know, give it up. Just gloss over it and move, move on. And uh, then I thought, well, but Paul is stopped here, and he's evidently used a term that they're okay with, that they would understand. Paul didn't think it was too uh, difficult to deal with. You know, it, it's complicated. It's controversial. Oh, no. Uh, Paul didn't think about that. He just moved on with it. And so I decided to look at it in my naivety. Uh, so I immediately went to J. Vernon McGee, <laughs> and I pulled out the index volume, and I looked up election, and I went through, and I got two scriptures that I thought kind of put a lot of things together. And I said, you know, rather than go in, because we could be here for weeks, let's just take two of them and look at them and see if we can kind of break them down a little bit. So I picked uh, Ephesians 1, 1 through 6, and 1 Peter 1 and 2. Now, when it comes to election... There's really no uh, question about the fact that God chose us before we chose Him. That's a given. God chose us before we chose Him. The question kind of circles around, did He choose those who would believe, or did He choose persons to believe? And that's a big difference. And that, that kind of circles around, well, what, what uh, degree does human responsibility and free will play in all this? Seems clear to me, but I, I thought we'd look at it. So, um, these two these two scriptures. So let's go to Ephesians first, Ephesians one. Oh, okay, thanks. <laughs> I'll get it. Here we go. Ephesians 1. Ah, my little tag went down. So, uh, I'll just read 1 through 6. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints, these are believers, who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with, all, with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. New sentence. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise and glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Okay, I threw in predestination just for kicks. Um, so we see some things, if we break that down and just look at it. He, number one, we get a when. We get it when it was done. It says before the foundation of the world. So we get when out of that. That's when we were chosen. And we also get a purpose out of that. Do you all see the purpose? That, we'd be, that we would be holy and blameless before him. So now we have a purpose. Then the sentence stops, and he talks about predestinate. He predestined us to adoption. So this is now a new thought. Predestined is is to predetermine or pick or to determine, and it seems to have to do with those who believe, not who believes, but he determined that those who would believe would also be adopted as sons. So this salvation that the believers get is going to encompass a position of blessing and privilege as an adoption of the Son. It would bring you into the family of Christ. didn't say who it was, but this is what goes with salvation. This is what you get with salvation. So that's good to know. And he did it for his glory. Now, let's turn. Is everybody okay with that? Let's turn to 1 Peter 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside, it says as aliens, and that is because they are aliens to the to the country in the sense that their citizenship is in heaven. So he's, this is another way of saying believers that he's speaking to. 1 Peter 1. Uh, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and Bithynia, who are, listen, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, 
to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. He uses that salutation as well. Okay, so I see a statement about who are chosen, who are elected, and then I see four things that follow. One is according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Two, obey Jesus Christ. I think Brian alluded to that already. And be sprinkled with his blood. So, I think that an important thing to look at is what is the meaning of according to? <laughs> because whatever his, he, we're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. What does according to mean? Any ideas? What are some, what are some synonyms, synonyms for it? Not synonyms. Tethered to, attached to, connected with. Because of. Because of. How about, would you accept based on? So it's, it's int intimately attached to it, right? Or based on. Now, what about the word foreknowledge? Somebody give me a definition of that. What? Uh, to know beforehand. Any others? Something that God knows beforehand, right? To have knowledge of an event before it happens. Would you accept that? Okay. So prior knowledge? Okay, I agree. Now, let me ask this. What is it that, that God does not know beforehand? Anything? He knows everything beforehand, right? So I was talking to Sue yesterday, and she's, or maybe it was this morning, and she said something about his characters. And he goes, she goes, oh, you know the three omnis, and uh, so we think of when, <laughs> when we think when we think of God, and we think of His knowledge. What do we call that trait, that attribute? Omniscience. And what does it mean? All knowing. All knowledge. He has all knowledge. And this word in here says foreknowledge. Now, uh, foreknowledge is really only relevant to somebody who lives in time, right? And what time zone, time zone does God live in? Who lives in time zones? We do. This word could have been easily just been his knowledge, right? According to his knowledge. And yet he uses the term foreknowledge to place it in a position that it's understood to be somewhere in time. And is that to his benefit to understand that, or is it to our benefit? It's to our benefit. He puts this in, he condescends to a term that he didn't have to use to make it more understandable. So now I'm going, hey, maybe he does want us to understand this stuff. So I, then I think maybe we, maybe we can understand this. Maybe we'll just let the Holy Spirit work on us and see, you know, even though we don't have all the degrees, if we can get some grasp of this. And so it's for our benefit that he, that he does that. Then he says, what is the word? Let me ask, what does by mean? By the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Just by, just the word by. What does that imply? Through or a, like by a process or the method used. So we have, we have a method or a means, a process, through a process. And his foreknowledge of what that process is, he does this. We're, we're caused to obey Jesus Christ. Brian always, has already pointed out that that's according to the love of Jesus. We love him, so we keep his commands. We love him. What about this sprinkle with the blood? What does his blood imply? Salvation. What, what required his blood to go from inside his body to outside his body? Crucifixion, which occurred with his death. All right? So that's his death. So we have the application of the value of his death to us such that we are transformed fully in a believing faith and can obey Jesus. And so I just took all this stuff and put it together, and I kind of came up with this meaning 
of putting those two passages. God chose believers before they believed, before the foundation of the world, based on his knowledge of a process or means which resulted in the application of the value of the death of his son to them such that they were truly transformed. He further determined that believers be transformed into the, if you go to Romans uh, 8.29, into the image of his son, making them members of his family, which glorifies God, which he did for his glory. So the pivotal point here seems to be the process. Would you agree? And it's called the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. If we go back to, uh, to uh, 1 Thessalonians, I stopped before I got to the rest of that sentence. And it says, uh, Knowing, brethren, beloved of God, his choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full, convi full conviction, just as you know. Okay, so now we're getting more into how the gospel came to these people. When, when Paul writes in the uh, first of Romans 1.16, I'm going to go a little bit long, but I need to finish this point. In Romans 1.16, he says he's not ashamed of the gospel. Remember why? Be because it is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. The power of God is the gospel. It's not just words. There's something attached to it in the power of God. Now turn over to John 1, 1. No, John uh, 6. John 1, 6. And we read something. This is something we, we frequently gloss over. It says in the Gospel of John 1, verse 6. I'm going to read through 9. It says... There came a man sent from God whose name was John. Who's that? John the Baptist, right? He came as a witness to testify about the light. Who's the light? Christ. So that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, Jesus Christ, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Every man has the light of Christ available to him. Is every man redeemed? No. But every man has the light of Christ available to him. It's not hidden. It's not hidden. And it's not determined by whether God makes a choice. Somebody have a question? That they might. It's available. He's available, but he doesn't force himself. It still requires human uh, response to that offer. Now, well, it, 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 it does say Truth and unrighteousness. So, yeah, so what they know, they have to suppress. Okay. They are this, is so, this is so good. And I'm so glad that Karen is in here this morning because we had a conversation one night when we were having uh, dinner over at our house. Remember, we talked about distractions and diversions. And, you know, it used to be you could say, What's, what's your problem? Jesus is the answer. Oh, that's so unsophisticated. You know? <laughs> You know, and you can't, they don't, he doesn't deal with these inter, this, uh, complicated, intricate uh, problems that we humans have today. We're, we're sophisticated. It's not just Jesus. And I think that one of the main uh, ways that we are blinded to the gospel is the fact that we have so many distractions going on. Okay? Now, let's get to the sanctifying power. I'm almost done. And let's go to John. We're already in John. Turn to 16 and go to verse 7. We're going to read 7 to 11. And this one, I know you all know it, but we don't really stop and think about it a whole lot. But I tell you the truth. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Who's the helper? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Now, I could try to explain this, but Charles Ryrie does a whole lot better than me, so I'm going to just read you what my comment says here. It says, The Spirit, through apostles, evangelists, and preachers, and I would say using the word, will convict the world 
To convict means to set forth the truth of the gospel in such a clear light that men are able to accept or reject it intelligently, i.e. to convince men of the truthfulness of the gospel. The Spirit will help break down the indifference of the typical pagan who has no conviction of sin, who holds a low regard for righteousness, and who pays no heed to warnings of the coming judgment. And I think there, every man, every woman, has at some point will be dealt with on a level basis. The Holy Spirit clears the table, and you can make a decision. And you are in charge of your decision. And God considers you a free moral agent. You know, He did the work. You can take it, you can leave it. And I have one last scripture uh, from Isaiah 118, just to make the point of who we are in God's eyes. Now, this is uh, corrected, uh, or, uh, it's, in, it's written to the uh, Jews in, Judea, uh, in Judah right before they're being, going to be ex exiled to Babylon. And, he's, and the Lord, uh, through Isaiah, is speaking to this group and telling them to open their eyes. And this is what he says. And it could just as, it's to them, but it's for everyone. It says, verse 18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. They, though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. To me, that says it all, that he's dealing with us, that we are rational, he is rational, he's not a God of confusion. The Holy Spirit gives everybody a shot. There you go. And God happens to know who's going to choose him. Okay, I'll stop. <laughs> All my cards are on the floor. <laughs> okay, so, uh, Jim, will you close this in prayer, please? Sure.